Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Dr. Sachin Panda, welcome to Weird Cells. Thank you for welcoming us from your location, I believe, in the United States. It's an honor for me to be here and speaking with you about the fantastic science of circadian rhythm. Could you kindly introduce yourself for our audience who doesn't know yet who you are, which I'm sure is very minuscule. Hi, I'm uh, Sachin Panda. I'm a professor at the Salk Institute. Um, this was founded by Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine. And um, it's a testament that sometimes a vaccine can completely obliterate a disease because many young people may not know what is polio. And that's the kind of uh, goal and standard Jonas Salk has set up for us. And uh, Salk Institute is in San Diego, California, which is on the west coast of uh, the US. And I'm super delighted to be speaking with you in this show. That's uh, very good. So I let's let's jump into it. Um, circadian rhythm that sounds like a mouthful. <laughs> Body clocks uh, they're everywhere. Talk to us about how you got started with circadian rhythm because I think it's under, it's essential for us to understand why it's so essential to everything that we are and everything that we do. Yeah. So the term circadian literally means near 24 hours. So um, the rhythms in our body uh, that repeat itself in every 24 hours that are literally called circadian rhythms. But the way I look at circadian rhythms is this is the science of understanding how our body is already pre-programmed to be at peak physical, intellectual, and emotional health in every hour of the 24 hours. And by understanding the biological principles that govern the circadian rhythms, we'll also learn how to leverage them to improve the physical, intellectual, and emotional health of everyone, irrespective of age, gender, ethnicity, or health condition. Because just like all of us are born with DNAs, similarly, all of us are also born with the pre-programmed plan to keep us healthy in every hour of the day. So that's why I'm super excited to study circadian rhythms. When I started almost 25 years ago, there were very few people studying this. Because the thing is for 200,000 years, we have been living on this planet with circadian rhythms, but only in the last 50 years or so, we woke up to its importance because many of us, I would say almost all of us, 
experience some disruption to our circadian rhythm for at least a few years in our life. And when these disruptions happen, we compromise our health, we reduce our uh, intellectual and emotional performance, we reduce our quality of life, and more importantly, recent research from multiple labs around the world are showing that by disrupting circadian rhythms, even for a few weeks or months, we can increase the risk for many chronic disease and also infectious diseases such as COVID. So that's why I feel like circadian rhythm, the study of circadian rhythm is in fact the key to the wholesome or the holistic health that we all talk about, but we didn't have a framework to connect everything together. So in this way, we can actually connect how the brain and body or the gut and brain or muscle and stomach, they all are interconnected in physiology and metabolism so that when we sleep less or when we eat at the wrong time, then it's not only one organ, but multiple organs and multiple body and brain regions are affected. And conversely, the good news is if we nurture our circadian rhythm, then everything about our health falls into its right place and we can leverage this very ancient program in our body to heal and repair ourselves so that we can come back to peak performance at any stage of our life. So peak performance sounds like something like Everest for most of us. And um, the lower hanging fruit sounds like decent life, good quality, uh, free of most disease and uh, being able to do something intellectually that challenges and interests us. Well, when you are saying peak performance, it actually means different things for different people, and we all respect that. For example, for young people, peak performance may mean that they, they aspire to excel in sports, dance, performing arts, um, something like that. And when you are in 20s and 30s, uh, peak performance may mean to stay healthy, to raise your children, or be the best in whatever you do, whether it's physical, intellectual, or emotional. And then when you are in your 40s, you may be striving to be in peak performance or in peak health, or perfect health, when your kids go to college so that you can pay for their tuition without worrying about healthcare bills. And when you are older, peak performance may mean looking, towards, looking forward to the fruits of longevity, enjoying traveling, fulfilling your bucket list or watching your grandchildren grow up. So it doesn't necessarily mean that peak performance doesn't mean that we have to go to the Everest. Uh, we all have our own personal definition and aspiration to be in that peak performance. Very good point. Um, so let's take a, a case study of in the past two years. I'm sure you've, you've seen the logical adaptation of your research to uh, the state of the world in facing this pandemic. So we've heard for the past two years that immunity is a big thing. Metabolic health uh, was essential in a risk factor associated with COVID-19. Obesity was a big thing. Aside from age, there's little we can do about age. So I would like to ask you, having observed as a scientist and as a human being, 
um, the state of uh, people's health and the state of advices that most healthcare in the Western world have given to people, which is mostly go home, stay home, stop exercising because obviously it's dangerous to be in the gym and uh, limit your time outdoor. Um, and the repercussion on eating, so changes in timing, more time spent sedentary. What has been your thinking as a scientist, especially a circadian rhythm scientist, of watching the advices and thinking, is there perhaps a better way that we can handle the advices at public health to help people going through this? Yeah, uh, this is a great question, uh, time-relevant question. And, you know, when we think about our healthcare system and how we are successful in delaying death, because we must keep in mind that 100 years ago, the average life expectancy in Western countries was only 45 years because nearly half of the uh, babies and children would die of infectious disease before they become teenagers. And uh, the great advances that were made was um, by identifying and recognizing that bacteria, viruses, and infectious pathogens are the causes of infectious disease. And we developed sanitation, vaccination, and antibiotics or treatment to tackle those diseases. And they still form the, justi justifiably, they form the cornerstone of fighting infectious disease. And we should not stay shy away from that because the first defense for any infectious disease is to keep the pathogens away. So that's why masking, isolating yourself or uh, not coming in close contact with people who have infectious disease is always the first line of defense. Then we are also seeing vaccination, sanitation, vaccination. And we also know that vaccination reduces the risk for disease, particularly severe form of disease. And we should recognize that. Um, there are many numerous examples uh, where the severe form of disease is reduced. For example, I always take a flu vaccine. That doesn't mean that I am completely immune from contracting flu. But at least I know that when I was not taking flu vaccine, I would be down for seven or more days, completely incapable of doing anything. And now if I have flu after taking the vaccine, then... I just get a mild symptom for a few days. That doesn't mean that I should be completely free to go and interact with people who actually have active flu. So now, the thing is, yes, these approaches help us to prevent the pathogen to get entry into our body. But the second thing that we have to also think about is if we are inadvertently exposed to the pathogen, which will happen for all of us to one or more pathogens, but if not uh, COVID, it may be something else. How do we enhance our resilience and immunity so that our body can fight successfully these pathogens so that we can come back to our peak performance or healthy state very quickly? And this is where sanitation alone will not help because we cannot just go and sanitize our in, internal organs. This is where 
the science of circadian rhythm actually is very critical because just like the germ theory of disease helps us to prevent disease and manage disease, the circadian theory of health or how sustaining our circadian rhythm can improve our resilience, improve our optimum immunity to fight disease is coming into play. So there are many ways. First is, as you mentioned, um, nurturing a healthy circadian rhythm, which means having sufficient regular sleep, going to bed at consistent time and getting sufficient sleep, and having eating fasting rhythms. So having a defined window of eating and fasting for the rest of the 24 hours. And good light exposure um, during the daytime, at least for 30 minutes, we'll get to these core things in a, in a minute or two. So nurturing the circadian rhythms um, have been shown to improve metabolism so that we reduce the severity or risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, metabolic diseases, which exacerbate the COVID-19 and related diseases. So by managing these diseases, we reduce the risk for severe forms of COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. And then um, there is also emerging data showing that circadian rhythms actually help optimize immunity. So our immune system, if you can think of this way, it's almost like um, a fire truck. So if there is a fire, of course, you need to call the fire truck. It will come and put out the fire. It has to put some water or fire retardant. But it should also stop spraying water on your house after the flame has been put out. And if that fire hydrant or the fire truck continues to sprinkle water, spray water or the, anti, uh, or the flame retardant after the fire has been taken care of, then it causes damage. And that's exactly what happens when inflammation continues beyond what is necessary. And that can be chronic inflammation when it continues for several days after the disease or the condition has been resolved. Or in some cases, what we call cytokine storm or excessive inflammation. So for example, if you are, just imagine if, if there is a house fire and the fire department sends a helicopter or an aeroplane filled with fire retardants, then it's not going to help. It's going to damage our, our, our home. So that's exactly what happens in these cases. But circadian rhythm is a mechanism that reduces or draws down our immune system back to its normal state after our body fights an infection because there is a daily rhythm in our immune function because our body is programmed to know that there are certain times of the day our body may be exposed or may be susceptible to different types of pathogens. So for example, we may be more susceptible to pathogens in the morning because that's when people do have stuffy nose, they will sneeze, they might release a lot of bacteria or viruses to the air. And if you're in close contact, then you might contract. Um, there are some studies, at least on flu that has been shown, uh, that there is more virus load in the morning. Of course, it makes sense because a lot of people do have stuff, you know. And so accordingly, our immune system 
is more active during those time and at night when we go back to sleep our immune system also goes to damp it itself down so that excessive inflammation goes down so in this way at least one of these ways we can foresee that how the circadian clock or having healthy circadian rhythm helps our body to damp down inflammation after our immune system has fought the disease or condition that it is supposed to fight so um these are some of the ways that we can um use or leverage the science of circadian rhythms to better fight um infectious diseases and build up our resilience so that when the first line of defense for example masking or vaccination or social distancing are not feasible or break down then at least our body has the internal capacity to fight and then the third thing that we are also finding very interesting is just like our body has programs to fight the infection or metabolize food at the right time of the day the body also has programs to better utilize medications at the right time of the day or night of course this is a very emerging science and we don't know the best um how best we use it but few cases where we know that it w- works very well um relates to say hypertension we know that in the us alone and in many industrialized countries close to half of the adult population have high blood pressure or hypertension and uncontrolled hypertension can be detrimental for heart condition and also lung condition kidney condition etc and circadian rhythm researchers the clinicians epidemiologists they have come to a consensus that irrespective of the type of antihypertensive drug or blood pressure medication you may be taking if people take the medication at bedtime then the efficacy of that medication is much better so that people who take blood pressure medication in the evening are less likely to have severe heart disease in the next 5 to 10 years and now that we know that both covid and post covid affect heart condition at least we can improve and sustain better heart heart condition um at least for those with hypertension by taking the hypertensive medication in the evening and also there are other studies showing that having better eating fasting rhythm also helps the heart to perform better uh, at older age or when uh, at least in laboratory animals when the laboratory animals are challenged with many unhealthy lifestyle or unhealthy food so there are many different ways we can use the science of circadian rhythm right now and the good thing is anyone can use it uh, in their lifestyle incorporate into their lifestyle to get some benefits and in some cases we find that the benefits of a good circadian rhythm is same or even surpasses some of the benefits by um, offered by medication so we are super excited to share this knowledge and thank you for giving the opportunity to reach out to lot of listeners like you like who are listening now uh, to understand the power of circadian rhythms 
So that's really interesting because you're saying there is such a concept of circadian health, which we understood from a scientific standpoint, but you're also now saying there's an emergent field of circadian medicine, whereby we could also leverage the power of knowledge about this, these internal mechanism in metabolism to actually distribute a drug at the, same, at the right time for an individual, which would be very different from one individual to the other, and perhaps even for a specific disease um, or disease type. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, and to some extent, I want to ask you as well, uh, because I, uh, as, as a scientist in, in, in uh, another field, which is burnout uh, and the physiology of burnout in healthcare professional, I've sort of despaired during, uh, I was despaired before COVID uh, because of the state of burnout in healthcare workers. But when COVID hit um, in Singapore and it hit everywhere else, what despaired me the most was what I knew to be true uh, in healthcare workers, which is uh, shift-induced uh, circadian disorder, um, all the disease that come with that if they sustain it for years. I actually watched happen in the normal population, in the regular population. Um, and I would like to um, uh, hear what you have to, to say about what are the likely impact of two years of a lot of people being even more sedentary than they were before, perhaps having shifted their sleep time to later. And I remember one of your um, statement once, which I thought, wow, that summarizes everything, which is when your eyes are open, your mouth is open. <laughs> so uh, emotionally, they also used food as a coping mechanism. So I would like you to think about this triptych that they've used in, in fairness, because that's the only tool that we all had. And what do you think the potential impact will be in, in the years to come? Yeah, so this, these are all loaded questions and <laughs> we'll dissect it and take one at a time. Uh, so let's start with shift work, because as you mentioned, healthcare workers, they are the true heroes of our society, because when all of us that asleep or when you are sick and when we cannot take care of ourselves, that's when we call upon these healthcare workers or the first responders. And they're really superhuman. They're the superheroes and wonder women. And unfortunately, we always take for granted that just like the comic heroes or superheroes and wonder women, they, these Healthcare workers are the frontline first responders don't need to sleep. They can be ready at any given time, which is untrue. The second thing that has also happened, and it's a clear recognition of um, what I call the late and asbestos moment in circadian health. The idea is just go back to 60s and 70s when we were building a lot of buildings, homes, etc., using lead and asbestos as building materials. And then we realized that no, these are really bad for our health. They can have long-term adverse consequences and can put us on a slippery path to early death. And then in the subsequent years, for the last few decades, we have been cleaning up lead and asbestos and we have changed our building code. Just like that, we did not know the short-term and long-term health consequences of shift work or circadian rhythm disruption. So as a result, there is no consensus 
even in a small country like Singapore, that for how many hours the front um, line workers or the fast responders should work in a day and how frequently their shift should change. Um, some, even within the same hospital, we see that uh, some residents work 12 hours shift and then whether it's day or night and within a week they have to go back between day shift or night shift. Whereas in some other programs that do eight hours and 10 hour shift and they have a week to transition from one shift to another shift. So that shows that this is a truly late asbestos moment for scheduling because we just schedule fast responders based on convenience of the manager or the institute that <laughs> led the rules. So as a result, what happens is if we look at the historical data on shift workers and their health, we find a lot of different things. Uh, and they can be categorized into three broad categories because they are more prone to, of course, metabolic health, metabolic diseases. Uh, they have higher incidences of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Um, second is they're also prone to more devastating life-threatening diseases such as cancer to an extent that World Health Organization has declared shift work for certain professions as carcinogen. So just like cancer, we avoid cancer-causing chemicals, it's time to optimize work hours so that we can reduce this um, risk. And then the third one, we all understand that shift work or staying awake for several hours losing your sleep also reduces your intellectual performance. So these frontline healthcare workers are more likely to make mistakes and some of the mistakes can be life-threatening for the patients. So uh, this is another area that uh, has was not recognized and slowly people are recognizing. And then the fourth one, which is very relevant is we know that in experimental laboratory studies, at least because we cannot do these studies in human, that if we simulate shift work-like lifestyle on laboratory animals, then they become more susceptible to infectious disease so that even a small dose of pathogens, which should our body should be able to fight off, they become lethal and then these animals die. And now if we put all of this together, we can see why there is high rate of burnout. And when we say burnout, it's emotional, intellectual, and also physical burnout that happens among these individuals, these superheroes and wonder women of our society. And this is where we can also think, okay, so is it limited to them? And this is where you brought up that a lot of people actually face similar burnout. And I would say that um, although we have made great progress in gender equality, still a toddler or a baby, when he or she is sick, he or she is more likely to cling to the mom than to the dad. So as a result, what has happened is women in many societies have become the primary caregivers for children and in some cases even for older adults. And with schools being closed and work being remote, many women throughout the world are actually doing two shifts. They're taking care of their family, their young ones, or they're giving care to people who are sick, 
at the same time if they can they're also trying to do their day job so they have become the unsung heroes of this pandemic and they are also the first responders in your home so they're not actually card carrying fast responders outside but they are your immediate fast responders within the home and they are also going through burnout because there is no strict there is no set schedule for them and um they are tack- tackling with a lot of different challenges and they cannot go out that their social support system has also broken down because of obvious reasons so this is where we got to recognize first that there is a problem so that we can take steps to solve them so now the question is how do we move forward and this is where i say that this is a this is a really late and asbestos moment let's recognize that there is a problem and it's widespread almost all of us are tackling with this now the um the pandemic is also affecting students and in almost every country the high school students and college students um they are of course their home that's uh, stuck to the home at the same time particularly in colleges as i see in the us uh sometimes the college students are in a different time zones and their classes are being taught in the uh, in the time zone of the colleges so they have become the digital shift worker where they have to stay awake at the wrong time or wake up very early reducing their sleep and then they have to attend to um the classes one more thing that has silently crept up in almost all high school and college education is the deadline for submitting your homework has now shifted from 5 o'clock in the old days we used to do to midnight so as a result now that people are taking the digital life as the easy life um now they're staying awake till midnight to submit their homework and then they don't they barely have any time to sleep so in fact there are many uh studies going on and published showing that how the high school students typically go to bed after midnight and they're always sleep deprived same thing is happening to college students which we haven't paid attention but that will again become an emerging health issues so we are not surprised that um there is a lot of burnout among students there is a lot of despair among students and then there is a lot of mental health issues so in a way the covid pandemic has brought out how as a society and how as individuals we all are subject to circadian rhythm disruption for many months or years in our lives and it also opens up new debate and new opportunities to redesign our anthropogenic world to let everyone live a healthy life by respecting their circadian rhythm so just imagine this thing we know that being able to sleep for at least 6 or 7 hours is a universal human aspiration and a human right because we ban any kind of torture that uses sleep deprivation for multiple days in this is almost universally accepted and if it is accepted as a human right then we should also let everybody uh enjoy that human right 
So let's begin with that to figure out how we can let everybody have access to sleep. One simple and nice example by working with firefighters in the US, what I've found is the firefighters have, have recognized that shift work, particularly 24 hour shift is really bad for their health. And they're also exposed to a lot of cancer causing chemicals in the surrounding and when the burning, when a building burns, the smoke itself has many cancer causing chemicals and the fire retardants and they're exposed to a lot of stuff. And they understand the importance of sleep. So in the US, at least the 24 hours career firefighters in many fire stations, they do have opportunity to sleep because they do have a bed. They can go lie down for a few minutes or hours between calls. So similarly, I would like to see that all healthcare facilities should have places for healthcare workers to go take a nap or even to sit down and have a meal, share a meal so that they can have the social support system. And this is something um, sounds naive, sounds very small, but it can have a huge impact. So similarly, we can think of new ways to let people practice good circadian health by letting them know or giving them the knowledge of what is circadian rhythm and what they can do to nurture it. And second, enabling them to practice on the new knowledge by creating an environment and social surrounding where they can practice circadian rhythms. So that sounds all very good. And um, I'm going to be cynical and ask you what's your view of um, meta and the future of us in the metaverse where all time disappears, all real light and connection to real life disappears because you're, you're going to be in a virtual life. So if the world that is imagined for us uh, tomorrow is a world where we get to build our connection to climate, our connection to the earth, a connection to real time, real light, um, real food, etc., is to be achieved, then how is this reality going to deal with the fact that it seems that society is pushing us ever more into a digital format of our lives? Where, as you pointed out, in that digital format, whether work, study, distraction, entertainment, there seem to be no time anymore. And if our biology is associated with time, then how would we live and, and be thriving in that no time environment? Yeah, this is a great point for reflection. What is interesting is if we think about all the species on our planet, we are the only species that knows controlled use of fire. And that's the key to human civilization and creating a anthropogenic world. Because when our ancestors lighted up the evening and stayed awake beyond the day, then few things happened. One is the night was not a simple extension of the day because during the day, our ancestors spent time hunting, farming, gathering, and getting food on the table. Or in those days, maybe fireside because, and in the evening after um, baking or grilling uh, or cooking some food, they had a little bit of relaxing time 
and that's when people talked about arts science visual art performing arts philosophy religion all of that happened from fireside chat and then next if we think about it little bit carefully when conflicts happen there are fighting between groups or tribes then being able to mount a surprise attack at night was hugely advantageous and then if you fast forward and you see when humans first time ventured out into the dark whether they were um exploring landmass or going in the sea to a different country then being able to stay awake and use the night time to go from one place to another was the key to expand civilization expand colonies and then in the industrial era being able to run the factory 24/7 by staying awake late into the night creating shift work has become the central theme of industrialization and creating wealth so the bottom line is circadian disruption in a weird sense has been the driver of human civilization prosperity and wealth creation but at the same time we also have to come to a recognition that there has to be some understanding of its limits or how we practice uh, within those boundaries the best example is for example uh, motor vehicles if we think about it it's really dangerous to see this one ton object going at 100 kilometers per hour and we are tied to a seat belt and we we slowly learn how to drive it safely to go from one place to another and to improve our productivity similarly if we think about our rectangular pieces of glowing objects that we use of course we can be on social media on our computer 24/7 but at the same time many of us are understanding what are the limits and how we should judiciously use them so as a result it's gratifying to see that almost every phone every tablet every pc is now coming with a night shift feature where you can program the device to dim it down and to change the spectral quality to orange color or something so that we can reduce the circadian disruptive effect of bright light or blue and red light and i would liken itself to an alarm clock to nudge you to go to sleep so now just think about it if we can train or if alexa siri cortana all these um all these digital individuals now if they are trained on human physiology or human circadian rhythm or pepe for example the robot then we can use that to our advantage for example if you have a sentient or a robot in your home who is checking on you and you are interacting with it and the robot can sense your body temperature and heart rate of course we have wearable then at least the digital um persona can understand our circadian rhythm and if we create circadian modules for them then they can actually help us to optimize our rhythms by nudging us when we should sleep 
when we should wake up, when we should dim down, even when we should eat. Uh, it should even have remind us what time of the day we should take our medication. It should even program us to sleep well for at least a week before our vaccination so that we can get the best out of our vaccination. So in a way, of course, these digital worlds are creating a lot of challenges, but at the same time, there is opportunity for a lot of innovations in healthcare and personal care field to use the same innovations to improve health. So that's why I always say that to create a culture of health, we need at least two things. One is education. Individual has, every individual should be empowered with the knowledge and the means by which they can remain healthy. And second, creating an ecosystem that will support the person to take action to improve their health. And in this case, the digital ecosystem can be designed in a way, actually in a very scalable manner to, to educate and nudge individuals to take care of their health. So I'm kind of on the optimistic side that we can use the same forces to uh, optimize a better anthropogenic world. I think I would be much more um, satisfied and not fearful if the likes of you were programming those things. Un unfortunately, that's not going to happen. We know that. But anyhow, it's a different it's a different discussion. The the one thing that I would like you to discuss uh, briefly is. Um, a big question of vitamin D deficiency has come up uh, during COVID-19, and it's been highlighted in, in scientific paper that vitamin D plays an essential role, and light and perception of light, especially in the morning, is very important. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of this in relation to circadian rhythm, not in terms of sleep, but every aspect of circadian rhythm alignment through light? Yeah, so uh, light and trans circadian rhythm in one principal way, that is light perceived only through the retina um, and blue spectrum of light is important for entraining our circadian clock to the outside world. The reason is, although we humans have been living on this planet for 200,000 years, we also live mostly away from the, a lot of us live away from the equator. And as the season changes, the day length also changes. Uh, what time it is morning also changes. So as a result, we have been designed to perceive this daylight and daylight is most enriched, is the best source for blue light. That is the blue cyan, blue color. And when that bright blue light enters our retina, that signals our brain to align our internal clock with the day-night cycle. And it's designed in a way that just the dim light that we use indoor is not enough, sufficient enough to uh, activate this blue light sensing pathway. And this is something that we discovered almost 20 years ago. Um, and it was considered one of the top 10 breakthroughs of the year by Science Magazine. So that means we actually have to go outdoor to get enough daylight to entrain our circadian rhythm. And when we get outdoor, it's not only blue light going through our retina, we also get exposed to other spectrum of light in sunlight. 
uh, near UV light, um, those are not that harmful to our uh, to our skin, but they actually are important to convert chemicals to vitamin D, which is essential. The reason why it is called vitamin is it's essential for our normal health. And vitamin D has multiple different uses in our body. So as we switch to indoor, and just uh, let's wind back and ask how much time we actually spend indoor in modern world, even before COVID, and based on cell phone data, because cell phones, uh, we are always with cell phones and cell phone companies are always tracking us to figure out where we are so that they can improve their signal strength or Wi-Fi strength. What we know is even before COVID, we used to spend almost 90, 92% of our time indoor, inside a built environment, inside a home. And the rest 10%, that maybe that also includes time we spend outdoor at night. So we actually spend very few minutes outdoor. And when you spend out, when we are outside, we are also so covered up with clothes and then we put so much uh, sunscreen that our skin, skin actually doesn't get enough light to produce enough vitamin D that our body needs. And during COVID, uh, two things become obvious that by, since vitamin D is important for many bodily functions, including immune function, um, and since we are spending so little time even before COVID-19, COVID pandemic, that many of us do not produce enough vitamin D. And that compromises our health in general. It's not that um, reduction in vitamin D next day will feel depressed or will get cancer or something. It's a slow leak. For example, just like you drive a car and that can there can be a slow leak and you may not notice it uh, for several days or months. It's almost like that. So now after COVID-19, as we became completely indoor, and unfortunately, in many parts of the world, um, the indoor environment is very dark. Um, particularly, a lot of people who live in neighborhoods that are not safe enough, uh, people don't open their windows. And so as a result, um, millions, if not billions of people worldwide are not getting enough um, daylight or sunlight to produce vitamin D that their body needs. On top of that, what is happening is once someone gets COVID-19 and is going through treatment or is quarantined for 12, 14 days, if you add people who are going through COVID therapy and then they're quarantined, it's almost more than a month that they're stuck indoor. They have no sense of, very little sense of day and night because you know you may have a little bit of daylight seeping through some tiny window, but that's not enough to entrain our circadian rhythm. That's not enough to fully prepare our body for vitamin D. So this is an unseen, unexpected uh, consequence of the pandemic that uh, we are deprived of daylight and we are deprived of proper circadian entrainment and also vitamin D. One more thing that I must uh, highlight is you might have noticed that when you don't have, when you are enclosed indoor completely, then our brain loses track of day or, day or night and 
It has been shown that many ICU patients who have no access to outdoor lighting or outdoor sense of time, nearly one third of them develop delirium. And we know that if you go to a casino, usually there is no windows, there is no sense of time, and your brain can start to gamble much more than <laughs> what you are capable of. So those are the extreme examples, but at the same time, when we lose track of time, our sleep is disturbed, we may not get enough sleep, and a sleep-deprived brain makes many wrong decisions, and we know that when you are sleep-deprived and if you are driving a car, it's very difficult to coordinate. Sometimes many car accidents or vehicle accidents involve sleepy people. And we know that when people are sleep deprived, they're also cranky. That means they cannot process the information getting into their brain or process the information that they want to say. So there is misunderstanding and argument and crankiness. So similarly, in a day, we take numerous decisions about what to eat, how much to eat, what combination to eat, what type of food we should eat. And when our circadian rhythms are not aligned and we are sleep deprived, then we make a lot of other bad decisions about food. We crave for more energy dense diet, and more sugary, fatty food. We eat more than what our body needs because our brain is confused that maybe this person is not going to sleep for a couple of days. So let's load up on more food. And we also make bad decisions about combination of food or mistiming of food. So for example, a sleepy brain on top of being sleepy will crave for, may crave for more uh, caffeine to even stay awake. So as a result, circadian disruption, being indoor, also compromises our own decision to take care of ourselves, so put us in a vicious cycle. And that can compromise our mental health, our physical health, and physiological health. Boy, that sounds um, that sounds pretty much like describing the past two years for most people. <laughs> so let's before we go into cognitive output and and you talked about it and specifically in terms of both cognitive performance, so the quality of the output of a brain that is circadian misaligned as well as the mental health of a brain that is misaligned. So we'll, we'll do that in a moment. So I'll just put that on on hold for now. I would like you to talk. Um, specifically about this, the, the fasting or time-restricting eating, because I think in the mind of a lot of people, we're not that familiar with circadian rhythm. I think it's fair to say that a lot of them focus on sleep. They get that. They understand that, yes, if I don't get enough sleep or I sleep late, fine. But they don't, they don't necessarily understand that there's other clocks there. There's the physical activity timing, there's the food timing, and the food timing is associated with your gut and your microbiome and lots of other mechanisms of metabolism. So I think it's very essential to also remember that circadian rhythms are plural. And I would like you to speak about especially the one about food because for most people, they eat not only more than once a day, they eat multiple times a day the wrong food, you've already spoken about it, but I want to talk about the periodicity of this food intake. Yeah, so you brought up a very important point that most of us connect circadian rhythm to sleep-wake cycle, that we go to sleep and we wake up. You know, um, we know that 
most of us know that we have to sleep for at least six and a half hours. So if we are in bed for eight hours, we get six and a half to seven hours of sleep. And we think that's enough. But actually, one of the big discoveries in circadian rhythms in the last 30 years is the identification that almost every cell in almost every organ in our body has its own clock. So that means just like our brain needs some downtime of, say, seven to eight hours to repair, reset, rejuvenate, and improve cognitive performance, almost every organ also needs some downtime to repair, reset, rejuvenate so that these organs can be at their peak performance. So now, what is peak performance for your stomach? The peak performance may be you should be able to digest food properly so that you don't have indigestion, bloating, acid reflux, etc. The peak performance for, for your muscle may be to be without injury, or if you're injured, then you should come back to full functionality faster. Your muscle strength should be good enough so that you can at least walk, run, climb the stairs, and do your usual stuff. So what we're finding is all these organs have their own clock, and we have to nurture them. And how do we nurture them? One big discovery over the last 20 years, and some of that also from my lab, is the recognition that food or when we eat and how frequently we eat is very powerful signal to our circadian rhythms in every organ. So that means every day our gut, our liver, heart, all these organs expect food at certain time. So by having breakfast at the same time or within say one hour window, we prime our organ to anticipate that food have that nutrition at the same time, at uh, the right time, so that they can be more active and reach their peak performance because they need nutrition. Now, the downside is when should we stop eating? And people always thought that just like we sleep, if we just stop eating before we go to sleep, that's enough. But if we just think carefully, even beyond outside circadian rhythm, so for example, if I eat at 6 p.m., my last meal, although my mouth finished its job, my stomach has to work on that food for the next five hours. So that means although I stopped eating at 6 p.m., my stomach will actually finish its job and will close the kitchen, or can have time to repair, reset, and rejuvenate at 11 at night. So that means just like our brain, that needs seven hours of sleep at least. And if our stomach also needs seven hours of sleep, then you now add seven hours of real reset, repair, and rejuvenation plus the five hours that it needs after the last meal to digest and be prepared. So now you can clearly see how we need at least, this is the minimum, 12 hours in a day, we should avoid food. Of course, water and medications are okay during that time, but we need that 12 hours. And then if we want to actually improve and have peak performance, because you know stomach just finished digesting that food, but it sent that food to the intestine, the next step, or the liver. So that means you need another two to three hours to process that food. So now, if you add up all that, what we're finding is our body actually needs 
13 to 14 hours without food to repair, reset, rejuvenate so that all our organs can perform perfectly. So how do we know that this works? So there are at least two to three different lines of evidence. One is animal, laboratory animals that when we feed them the same number of calories from the same food source, but when the animals eat whenever they want so that they don't have this long fasting, then they succumb to many types of diseases, including obesity, diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease, gut disease, and they have dysmetabolism, they have bad bugs, microbiome, and many more. They also cannot sleep well. Whereas if they eat the same number of calories from the same source, irrespective of how healthy or unhealthy the food is, if they eat that within eight, nine, or maximum 10 hours, then they can prevent all of this disease. And those who already had the disease, those animals, they can actually reverse it to some extent. So now you may question that this is all animal studies. We have actually gone out and tested it in many human clinical trials. And right now there are more than 100 ongoing or completed human trials in different parts of the world on different people with different health conditions. And they have all coming to the similar conclusion that yes, our body actually needs that at least 12 to, and in best cases, 14 hours of fasting every day because it nurtures circadian rhythm. And since circadian rhythms are in every organ, in every part of our brain, when we nurture our circadian rhythm, we can improve the peak performance and health of every organ in our body. So as a result, it looks like it's a multi-solving approach to be healthy. Just like when you wash your hand with soap for 20 seconds or more, it's not only the COVID-19 um, virus, there are many uh, diarrhea causing bacteria or other disease causing stuff that um, bugs that you kill. Similarly, by nurturing our circadian rhythm, we can take care of our organs, multiple organs from our digestive system to liver, pancreas, kidney, heart, and even our hormone-producing glands, they perform much better. Again, this is a very new emerging science, and uh, there, is a, there is also some confusion because you'll hear once in a while, somebody will say, yes, you should eat one meal a day, and some people may say, no, you should eat four hours within a day, and some are saying eight hours. And the bottom line is, if you are healthy, then anyone from 10-year-old to 100-year-old can and should eat maximum within 12 hours. We call it 12 hours time ratio eating. And it's almost similar to brushing your teeth every day so that you reduce your risk for dental disease. But just like if you have dental condition, then you have to go to dentist and or maybe the dentist will ask you to floss your teeth. Then trying to eat within 10 hours or even eight hours for a few weeks um, might give you better health benefits. But at the same time, we also recognize that many people may have underlying conditions that make them prone to adverse effect of being without food. For example, there are many people who are with diabetes, living with diabetes, they may be taking diabetes medications that don't work well with more than 
14 hours of fasting. And in my recent book, in the Circadian Diabetes Code, I describe it very well. So my advice is, if you have any health condition, if you want to try eating all your food within eight to 10 hours or less than eight hours, then it's better to talk to your doctor. Sometimes your doctor might have some knowledge about your health from your health chart um, that he may not have discussed with you because it may not be important right now. But when you combine that with fasting, it might not give you the best outcome. So that's why it's always better to talk to your doctor before you start doing this. So before we conclude, I just want to go back to my favorite organ, and that's the brain. Um, so we, we, we sort of understand, and I think, folks, the best advice that you've heard after all the specifics about it is read about your health. So go out, find out the books uh, written by experts, take the time to learn about how your body works, and I think they can do that checking our episode notes with your two books. But now we understand we have to look after our body, but our body is effectively feeding our mind. And our mind is, in my, in my conceptualization of it in a conversation, is really two aspects. The wellness of the mind, and by this I mean the actual health of the brain, and that includes obviously its disease, mental health, depression, etc. But also its performance, intellectual output, ideation, innovation, poetry, music, arts, discovery, and science. So for people listening up, what is the relationship between circadian rhythm and these two aspects of brain? And what can folks do to optimize both of those things? Yeah, as we all know, uh, we always connect our circadian rhythm with brain health or sleep. And those of you who are listening to this podcast from northern latitude, extreme north or extreme south, you also know that in winter time, you get winter blues because you don't see enough light. And now we can connect what is the impact of light on our brain health because the same blue light sensing cells in our retina that entrain our circadian rhythm, they also signal to other parts of the brain that reduce depression and improve alertness. So there is a direct connection between our exposure to daylight. When I say daylight, it's not looking at the sun or the sky in the middle of a sunny day. Even if it is a cloudy day, just being outdoor for 30 minutes to an hour is a very powerful antidepressant because there is at least 5,000 to 10,000 lux of light in a cloudy day. And that's five to 10 times more than what our circadian system needs to enter. So, Number one, uh, try to be to take the connection between brain health and circadian rhythm is uh, through daylight. Be outdoor for at least an hour if you're suffering from depression or mild depression, feeling low. If you're healthy, then 30 minutes may be enough. Um, and that improves alertness, reduces depression, and you feel just a little bit happier. The same time, late at night, you should avoid that blue light because that blue light or bright blue LED, even in a store, like for example, if you walk into a grocery store or a drugstore, those are very brightly lit and there is enough bright light there. 
or if you are working on your um large screen television entertaining yourself or working on your laptop or or tablet at full brightness then there is also enough light to disrupt your circadian rhythm reduce the production of, of nightly hormone melatonin and to keep you awake and when you are awake or when your sleep is compromised then we know that that also reduces our brain function because during our sleep we produce better synapses we detoxify our brain so by not enabling our brain to strengthen the synapses and not and by not draining our brain of all the toxic chemicals we reduce our brain function so more daylight during daytime less bright light at night time and they help to improve brain function the third one that we don't understand well um, but it's a very actively growing area is there is this thing called blood brain barrier there is a barrier between our blood and the brain cells that ensure that many of the toxic chemicals or unwanted hormones and other stuff that a body needs but the brain doesn't need they don't leak out seep into our brain and now there is uh, there are studies showing that the circadian rhythm or circadian clock actually maintains the integrity of this blood brain barrier so that means when we disrupt our circadian rhythm then unwanted chemicals and toxins or hormones that are not needed in the brain can seep into the brain and can reduce brain function so there are at least these three major ways that we know that we can uh circadian rhythm disruption by not getting enough light during the day getting too much light at night or in general having a bad circadian rhythm can compromise our brain health and conversely now maybe it's a good time to think of how do we bring all of this together to come up with simple what you call secret sauce or weird sauce or whatever it is for everybody to practice i call it the six different six rules or six ways you can improve or sustain or nurture your circadian rhythm and you don't need to spend any money <laughs> that's much more important because uh it's all encoded in our uh dna so number one is try to go to bed at a consistent time every day and be in bed for 8 hours so that you can get at least 6 and 1/2 to 7 hours of sleep because as i mentioned having good night sleep your day actually starts from the time you went to bed last night because when you sleep enough then you're more energetic in the following day because that's when many brain chemicals are secreted many repair hormones are secreted and both our brain and body goes through repair and rejuvenation during our sleep number 2 is to wait for at least an hour between waking up and having your first meal because although your brain just woke up and you stepped out of your bed your body is not fully prepared to digest properly digest your food because your sleep hormones melatonin is still going down and your stress hormones or cortisol are beginning to rise so that's the time when a body is confused between whether it's night or day and it's not the best time to eat 
by giving yourself one or two hours before between waking up and first bite, you actually improve the chance of better digestion. And then number three, which is the core of this circadian optimization, is to have breakfast at consistent time every day, whatever time you pick, and then eat everything within eight, nine, 10, or maximum 12 hours window so that you'll have better downtime for all of your organs. So this is the most profound way to take care of circadian rhythms everywhere outside a small part of the brain. And there are numerous health benefits from obesity, diabetes, to even reducing cancer risk. The number four is don't forget exercise because exercise is the best medicine. At least 30 minutes of outdoor brisk walking for most people is good enough. And if you're pressed for time, then it's better to do that 30 minutes of exercise in late afternoon or evening because new results are showing that by when we exercise in the late afternoon, our body is best prepared, our muscles are most prepared to do exercise and we have reduced risk for injury. And then the third, for people with diabetes or pre-diabetes, doing exercise in late afternoon or evening is much better in controlling your blood sugar than doing similar exercise in the morning. So it's better to do in the afternoon. So then which is number five is don't forget to be outdoor for at least 30 minutes. And if you can combine your exercise with uh, outdoor activity, outdoor uh, brisk walking, when there is still some daylight, then that's best. And then coming to the end, number six is stop eating and dim down your light for at least two to three hours before bedtime so that we can improve our digestion and um, for the best of our body and also allow our sleep hormone melatonin to rise so that you can have a good night's sleep that you all deserve. So in this way, by following these six simple rules, one can optimize our circadian health. And even if you can follow one, two, three, or four of these rules, that's a very good step. At least you know what is on the menu and what you can practice. Begin with one or two healthy habits, and then you can slowly incorporate the rest into your life. That's very good. Thank you for that. And uh, to conclude this wonderful conversation that should have including aging and the brain, dementia, maybe for another episode. Um, let us know what is your weird sauce, your own personal weird sauce for life, because we would like to hear um, how does someone like you achieve so much in science, in communication, um, and also has time to share with the likes of us in the podcast world that are not uh, that are in the academic uh, environment, but are here to share this knowledge with the general public that you uh, gracefully indulge that time as well. So tell us what's the recipe for that. <laughs> it's really hard to uh, say pinpoint one thing, but you know, one thing that uh, my lab animals taught me when I described these experiments is I was really impressed to see how our lab animals 
when they ate within eight or nine hours, they improved all aspects of health, including they improved the endurance, they improved the muscle mass, everything. And at that time, I was not too healthy. And um, being of Asian descent, I know that I have a high risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And many of my friends and classmates, they already have those diseases. So one thing that I have tried to do is to eat, try to eat every day, all of my food within 10 hours. And I know that I'm not perfect every single day. Once in a while, I go outside 10 hours. But I know that if I come back to 10 hours, then I can improve my sleep quality. I feel more energetic. I have better mental clarity. And I can really perform at a slightly higher level than if I don't do that one habit that's eating within 10 hours. And also what I have found is by eating within 10 hours and fasting for a relatively long time, it has improved my taste for food. So I don't crave for cheap energy dense diet. I enjoy natural food. I enjoy different types of cuisine. And um, it also gives me something more to enjoy in life. So that's my, I would say, secret sauce, weird sauce. That's, that's your weird sauce. Yeah. And before we before we let you go, remind us uh, and the folks listening, the titles of your two books. I believe you have two books. You may have more. I know you have a lot of papers, and I've read a lot of them. Uh, but for those who don't are not inclined to read scientific papers and want to understand through the books that you've read, remind us of your your books uh, titles. Yeah. So the first book is the Circadian Code. And it was published in 2018, and now it has been translated in multiple languages. Um, so it's available in Chinese, uh, um, Spanish, German, Russian, etc. The second book is more focused on diabetes because over the last few years, I realized that nearly half of the adults in industrial countries are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And when people go from health, healthy living to pre-diabetes or diabetes, it's a slippery slope. But by following very simple circadian lifestyle, we can reverse, manage, prevent, improve the health of people living with diabetes. So that's why the second book that just came out in November of 2021 is the Circadian Diabetes Code. And it also tells a little bit about circadian rhythms and then dives deep into how our circadian clock is intertwined with metabolism and how taking care of our circadian clock actually helps us better control not only our blood glucose, but all the sinister friends that come with diabetes, whether it's heart disease, kidney disease, and many other conditions that people with diabetes experience. So those are the two books. Um, circadian cord and the circadian diabetes cord. Fantastic. So let's um, chase away the sinister friends and let's, uh, let's hear it from you folks. Read books, find out about your health, uh, listen up to videos. If you can't reach out with scientific papers because of the jargon, there's still other ways to do that. So Dr. Penda, thank you very much for being with us and uh, sharing this conversation and this time uh, to try to translate a little bit the complexity of the science behind all you do to the actual implication for ourselves, humans, uh, who may not have the time or 
perhaps the sophistication to go into scientific papers and perhaps this will engage people a little bit more in taking charge of their health and it doesn't need to have pharma associated with it, it doesn't have need to have complexity it needs to just listen up read up and be interested in the future of your health so thank you again for your time we wish you a very good success with your book and um, of course very good health going forward thank you and have a perfect circadian day <laughs> unlikely given it's so late at night <laughs> but thank you if this conversation stopped you in your track share it with your network you never know whose life you might change for the better thank you for listening stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life <laughs> <laughs>